We're back to the Mike Velarde Show, and I'm excited to welcome the program, Mike Velarde. Mike, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, good, Neil. How are you? Good, good. This is going to talk school board. This is an interesting thing because, you know, uh, former being a former teacher myself, I know how important school boards are and the right having the right people in, for sure. Yeah, so we got two, two really, really uh, courageous women here standing up to win these seats. Uh, Angelique and Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Neil and Michael, for having us. You're welcome. So I'll let you guys talk a little bit about yourselves and what you're doing and why you're doing it. Go ahead, Amanda. Okay. Um, I started this journey. Excuse me. I've been sick for about two weeks. Um, I started this journey just as advocating for my children to get the masks off their faces and quickly realized that the masks are the least of our problems and we have so many other issues that we need to deal with within the schools. Um, and from showing up to the meetings and, you know, finding out the critical race theory madness that they're putting in the schools, the white advantage statement that they had, um, and they put it under the guise of equity, and then so many other things that they're doing within our schools, I really became disgusted and learned that they're not listening to us. There's no discussion at the end of the meeting when we advocate, and they just already have their decision made before they go in there. It's a seven to zero vote every single time. And the only way to change anything is to get these people out of here. So I decided to step up and run. Well, we think that's yeah. great. I mean, that, that's terrific. And I, I'm real proud of you for doing that. Thank you. Real proud of you. And we want to support you. So at the end of the show, we want you to make sure you tell everybody how they could uh, get money to you or volunteer or do what it's necessary. Uh, that's the purpose of the show. That's what I like about it is I, I give people like you, real patriots, the opportunity to come on the show and get your information out so people can help you. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, and a little bit about myself. My name is uh, Angelique Contreras. I'm running for Palm Beach County School Board in District uh, 4. Uh, that accompanies uh, Palm Beach Island all the way down to uh, Delray on the east coast of Palm Beach. Um, and similar to Amanda, the reason why I got involved was because of the things that we were seeing uh, when we got locked down, when we were doing online learning with our kids. It actually gave us a bird's eye view into the classroom, and I didn't like what I saw. And and then when August 2020 came and they told me that my child would have to wear a mask for eight hours a day, five days a week, I decided uh, to take my child out of the school system. And then a year later in May in 2021, they decided that they wanted to change their mission statement and state that they wanted to restructure schools or they wanted to dismantle schools structured in white advantage. Um, in my opinion, that is racist. Wow. And a big group of us stood up against that. And we still have a big battle ahead of us. Well, let's talk about that for a second. How many, how many people that are running against you are liberal and how many are conservative? What's the makeup of the school board where you're, where you're trying to get a seat on it? Um, who controls it? How does it function? Tell us that stuff. So right now we have a board of seven in Palm Beach County. And out of the seven, we have seven Democrats. Uh, we actually have four seats up for election this year. Uh, like I stated, August 23rd is the election that is during the primary. And we have a chance to get four conservatives on that board, which gives us majority. And so we are working together to get that across the finish line, but we need boots on the ground. We need volunteers. We need people phone banking um, because I'm telling you the school board elections, in my opinion, are one of the most important battlegrounds that we need to get all together on. 
I agree with you. I think it is. So how many conservatives do we have running for those seats right now? I hope we have at least four. We do. We do. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. Someone run each district. So it's great. We have a great chance to get the majority. Okay. And how many, how many liberals are on the other side running against you? There's just one, one in each seat, just the incumbent. No other lib. Well, that's not true. In seven, there's two liberal um, candidates. Other than that, it's it's one just the incumbent in each in each district. Okay, so basically, you have a bunch of conservatives taking on the incumbent. Is that what we're looking at here? Yes. Okay, and so in order to win the race, what do you guys need? First and foremost is donations. Unfortunately, that's the cold hard truth of running campaigns as it takes money. Mailers are very expensive. The incumbents all already have their name recognition with their voters. So it's our job to get our names out there to the voters and let them know that they have another option through mailers, text, um, door knocking, everything. So we need volunteers for door knocking. We need donations and we need people to make phone calls. Okay. What are you seeing? Like what the, the, you said, the certain initiatives, if you don't have conservatives in the school board, what could happen? You talk about critical race theory being taught all their different decisions that school boards are make on a regular basis for our audience to understand the importance of running for school board, especially if you don't like what your districts, what's happening in your district. Yeah. So right now on the school board, um, most of the board members don't even have children in school. The woman I'm running against is 71 years old. She's been on the board for 12 years. She's been in the district for about 20. And, you know, she doesn't have any skin in the game. So when she makes these decisions, she has no idea what it's doing to our children. And besides the highly um, politicized issues, we have so many other issues that really need to be dealt with that I don't even think they really care because it's not part of their political agenda. We have a teacher shortage. Teachers are leaving because they're not paid enough. They're, they're offering them a 1% raise right now. We are short on police. We don't have enough police officers to protect our children. With everything that's gone on in the past years, you would think that that would be a priority. And it's also a law. There's just so many, even um, we're short janitors. So we don't, the teachers are cleaning their own classrooms. And there's money set aside to keep the, the schools clean from COVID. And I don't know where that money's really going. So there's a lot of other issues that aren't, you know, at the forefront of everybody's mind. And, uh, I, think and I think, I think the biggest thing, Neil, is that we need balance. There's seven Democrats on that board. Um, and what's interesting is that they say that I'm the most controversial candidate and I'm trying to seek partisan national attention. Yet my incumbent has the endorsement of every single Democrat here in Palm Beach County. And so I do believe that we need balance on that board so that we can have a better education for our children so that we're focusing on the education and not the indoctrination of our children, which is what they're doing with critical race theory, with the other agendas that they have and that they're pushing and spending our tax dollars on. Uh, they are not focused on filling the gaps with the teachers. They are not focused on filling the gaps with the police officers. And like Amanda said, our schools are dirty. We don't have janitors yet. We have ESSER funds and other funds that have come into our school district for them to clean our schools spotless for COVID. Yet our schools are dirty and they aren't passing uh, health inspections. So these are the issues that we're dealing with locally in Palm Beach County. 
And so how can you change that narrative? I understand the school board like outside of Pittsburgh where, you know, it's very wealthy districts that have money to spend. The, the schools are spotless. They're very nice, affluent. What, what is happening in Florida schools that you run in the situations, the way they pay the teachers, the funding, how can you change things if Florida is not willing to change things with how they pay teachers and also how they take care of the schools and that police? Yeah, well, we need Go ahead, Amanda. We just need to get people, new people with new ideas that are willing to get the boots on the ground and do the work. Right now, we have career politicians in these seats and, and it's not their first priority. So we need to get people that are willing to work with legislators and get these things done. Yeah, and it's, you know, the same sentiment. I think, too, is that our school district has gone and usurped the, um, you know, the state laws, has tried to go over Governor DeSantis' request um, at every, you know, turn. And so I think if they have more support from the school board um, in Palm Beach County, we are going to see better schools because we need to bridge the gap with the parents to work with our communities so that we can better the education so we can make sure that our schools are safer and cleaner. The money is available. In Palm Beach County, we have a $4.2 billion uh, budget. Yet, like I stated earlier, they're spending it on special interests. They're, they're spending it on the National School Board Association consultants to come in, come into our district and tell us how there's all of these inequities. So they're spending our money on unnecessary programs, on unnecessary consultants, rather than focusing on what is the most important. And that's why Amanda and I um, and other candidates are out here advocating because they need a voice in, of reason, right? They need somebody that's going to step up for what's actually needed, not for the special interest. Let's, we're both moms. Um, I have three children. Amanda has two children. Um, you know, we're really dedicated. We're not we're not polished politicians. We're just moms that want to work with our community and make what's best of Palm Beach County's budget and our schools and make a better education for our children. Great, great information. And it's very interesting. Why do people want to be career politicians in school board? What's the reason without getting paid to be a career politician in the school board? I think that's a really good question. And I think that the answer, we can all just speculate. I don't think anyone has a clear proven answer on that one. Well, it's power. That's what it's about. It's about power. Democrats love power. They're power hungry. They want to be in charge. They want to control everything, tell everybody what to do. Mm -hmm. That's what it's about. Yeah, I agree. And I think it is power and control because um, when Amanda goes and advocates for the police officers and, and reads a letter for them, um, our vice chair went and cursed out the officers and they were telling the uh, news that the reason why they did not want to merge with the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office for them to patrol our schools was because they don't want to lose the control of the police department. So it's all about control. It's all about being able to um, do what they want with their agendas. I'm telling you, Marsha Andrews has been there for 18 years. Uh, Karen Brill has been there for 10 years. Erica Whitfield has been there for eight years. And um, Frank Barbieri has been there for 21 years. And you have to wonder if they haven't gotten the work done necessary for our children, then why are they actually there? 
Well, they're there to push an agenda, and that agenda is the liberal left agenda. That's that's what you're saying. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what you're saying, and we we got to take that back. This is the year to do it. It is absolutely the nation. We're seeing it. So if there's ever a time for parents to step up and run and actually unseat these incumbents, it's this year. Yep. And so I'm shocked at hearing school boards that there's money you have to raise to advertise. It's crazy. How has this become such a big, crazy thing? I mean, again, this is stuff that's not out there in the news. So people think school boards, especially, I guess, Palm Beach is huge. Like in Pennsylvania, the districts are very small and they don't have like large county districts or anything like this. So you're looking at a lot of power, as Mike talked about, favors are probably happening as they happen in politics. So raising money, how do they keep the accountability of what money you raise for a school running for school board? Right. So there you go. They might be, you know, writing lots of things off and utilizing it for their own advantage versus what really is there for the children. I know. I think it's so important to look at all the long list of endorsements, as Angelique said, and look at that. And then, and then let's go back and look at different policies that have been put into place and how these specific names benefited from it. Cause I bet it would be quite eye-opening. Right. Yeah. You know, what's even more interesting. And I go back to this too, you know, because we've kept an eye on our County commissioner, because we have kept an eye on our school boards, when you actually look at the um, threshold of employment, right. Of individuals that kind of cross pollinate, pollinate between the commissioners and the school district. We have an attorney on the school district board that actually is married to one of the county commissioners in Palm Beach County. So there's a lot of cross pollinating. Um, you know, there is different organizations and nonprofit that have gotten contracts from the school districts. Um, I know Deborah Robinson for years has opened and closed nonprofits that have gotten uh, contracts with the school districts. So they're definitely is a special interest there. Um, my opponent, and this is just, um, you know, in, from in my opinion, and it may not be factual, I do want to say that, that, you know, when she started in this career eight years ago, you know, she was only making about, she, her net worth was around $250,000. And to this day, when she, every year you have to put in your financial report, she's worth over $1.5 million. So you have to, you know, begs to question, what are the relationships and what are the special interests? And that's the scary part. But again, we don't talk about that. So what happens in a school board, uh, Amanda, if you've heard or different things or you guys doing research running for this, what responsibilities do you have as being a school board member, especially for large districts like the districts you're running for? Well, first and foremost, um, we have to combat what they're trying to implement. So basically they, they make policies, they write policies and they're supposed to be policies that are in the best interest of the children and the teachers and the staff of Palm Beach County. And I would say that a lot of these policies, sorry, FedEx. That's okay. okay. <laughs> He's actually, he ate some money. That's why I didn't, hold on, let me grab him. Angelique, you go and let me grab him. 
Yeah, so um, the board is meant to work with the superintendent um, on policies, on budget, on things that affect the uh, school district. And so uh, many of the things that we have seen passed in our school district um, have been at the directive of the superintendent. Remember, in, in Palm Beach County, and it may be different in other states, um, our superintendent is not elected. He is hired. Um, so the school board actually is the boss of the superintendent. So we're meant to work with the superintendent on uh, policies with the administration uh, to pass these certain policies within the school district. And in Palm Beach County, a lot of the times when they bring up a new policy that they're going to discuss, they vote 7-0. There is never a deferring vote. There is never... Um, you know, conversations or uh, conflict within the board and questioning uh, if this policy is something we need to actually spend money on and um, implement into our schools. And so, like I said, we need to um, combat that and we need to create balance because, you know, they're passing things like the mission statement that was 7-0 for the white advantage statement and um, other policies as well have been passed by this board. What are the terms? How long? How long is the school board term? Four years. Four years. And so they, it's a four year. So it's a four year term, and then you can run again for reelection. Uh, Governor DeSantis just actually passed, in my opinion, um, the legislator could have done a better job and gave them a term limit of eight years, uh, but they actually kind of bowed down to the other. Um, individuals, a part of the legislation that uh, demanded 12 years. So there is term limits now uh, before, like I stated, some of them have been there 18, 21 years, but their term limits is 12 years. So that's good. So that means that means a lot of these people are going to be forced to leave in the very near future. Yes. Right. Just one, one thing back to what you were saying, since I had to run away. Um, I think the most important thing is that you are elected to serve the community. Right. And that you work for the community. It's not the other way around. And I think that's so important for school board members to understand that you work for the people. And part of that is to provide transparency to the people. And when Angelique says there's no discussion, that is a time for people, of the, the board to explain to the community what the policy actually means. And they fail to do that 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. And I was going to add to that, they actually took it so far to the extent that they were going to create a policy that was going to limit the speaker's time. They only wanted for us to speak a minute at these board meetings and only a maximum of 60 individuals can sign up to speak in that a lot of time. And then on top of that, they voted to take away the video. So when individuals were watching and they couldn't make it to the meeting, the segment where you had individuals talking from the community about the real issues that are happening, the entire district would not even know what was being said. Um, you have yet to bring that back up. And I know that our legislators tried to demand that they did not vote on this and pass it. So we are still waiting to see if this is something that they're going to enact in Palm Beach County. Wow. Yeah, so there's some powerful stuff for sure. So I'm gonna, I think we should give An Amanda and Angelique now time to say why they should elect, they should be elected to the school board. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Well, first of all, 2022 is the year of the parents. I think we've all realized that we need school board members that care about the children and what's in the best interest of the children. We need to get normal people on the board. We do not need career politicians any longer. It's time for a fresh face. Marsha Andrews, my opponent, is 71 years old. If she hasn't done it by now, she's not going to do it. So what do you have to lose to try something new? Yeah, and my, my sentiments are the same, uh, Neil and Michael. Um, it is time for a change. On my flyer, it says I am a catalyst for change. I want there to be complete transparency. I want to work with my constituents, those that pay the salary of the school board members. I think it is time for a change. I think it is time for there to be representation for everyone, not just for those that align their values with the school board members only. And that is why I'm running. I'm running to not just be a partisan candidate. I am running for every constituent in Palm Beach County. I'm there to listen to their concerns. I am there to fight for them and advocate for them because I am an elected official only. It is not about what my interests are. It is about the constituents' interests. And that is what I'm running on. And I hope that I get your support in our campaign and vote August 23rd, 2022. Excellent information, Mike. Anything else to add? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, make sure you give your information where people can send you a check or website, whatever you have. And uh, I'm going to write you to check for 50 bucks. And I'll put that in my wallet when I see you next at the next meeting to help you out a little bit. Because um, we want to see you funded. We want to see you win. That's, that's really the goal here. So please let our audience know uh, how they can contribute to your campaigns and help you out. So my website is sylvestriforschoolboard.com and that's S-I-L-V-E-S-T-R-I for F-O-R school board. Yeah, you can find me at Vote Contreras. That's V-O-T-E-C-O-N-T-R-E-R-A-S dot com. Um, send me a message. Need volunteers. If you can donate $5, $20, everything helps when we're up against the machine. And uh, I do appreciate you, Neil and Michael, for having both of these moms on a mission on today. Okay, that was great, uh, for sure. And MikeVillardiBooks.com. Also, you can check him out, MikeVillardiShow.com and WinningTaxSolutions.com. Right, Mike? Yep, that's it. All right. Well, we appreciate it. What a great show. Uh, great information to learn more about what's going on with the decisions that are made for our kids in school. That it's really not the teachers in control. It's the school board. And if we don't put the right people in place as school board members, our kids will miss out. So I appreciate you guys stopping by. Thank you for having Bye. me. Thank Bye. you, gentlemen. All right, guys, that was the Mike Bellardi Show. Guys, take care. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm just excited to talk to this procrastination expert, meaning he knows <laughs> how difficult it is to stop yourself from procrastinating with his expertise level and organization skills. Dr. Pat Sanahan. Uh, Dr. Patrick, how are you? And uh, we're going to talk more about procrastination because it, I mean, I start thinking about stuff, started to work with you and learn from you. I am a procrastinator, even though I never thought I was. 
yeah well most of us procrastinate about something so um as i mentioned before about 20 to 25 percent of us are chronic procrastinators but it sounds like once in a while you procrastinate because i know you you sit down for hours and hours at a time and punch out work where i have to take lots of little breaks in 15 20 minute chunks I, I put off things i don't want to deal with that's, yeah, that's my procrastination that's my big procrastination you know what i don't want to deal with this i was throw it way out of my to-do list or you know what i'll get to it after everything else is finished Absolutely. You know, even though it's a fire to put out, nope, I'm willing to hold off on this and take care of the things that make me feel better. But that's not a good thing all the time, is it? No, it's not a good thing. It, I mean, you described the procrastination habit very well. Usually there's a very uncomfortable task. It might be complicated or boring or just anxiety producing. And uh, the feelings are very intense. You step away from the task, which you did, your feelings... Whew, disappear the anxiety the stress the worry the overwhelm and it is a that's the habit loop right i feel a lot better i've walked away from the task intellectually i still know i got to do the thing but i feel 100 percent better and that's that's a powerful powerful cycle that keeps on going well i like you when you talk about rewarding yourself for something that's not pleasant and i have Absolutely. to work on that more often it just seems like there's not many unpleasant things it's things that are i know i'm not going to get to the result i want okay so no i was about to say is that you're trying to get something really uh, that you don't want to do because i don't want the result that i don't want so i'm going to put it off because it's very unpleasant and the completion might still not be a good completion that really is worthwhile. So that's when I put things off. Yep. No, that, that's a, that's a, that describes a lot of procrastinators. I think if you have a task, you know, you have to do a couple things you need to be able to think about is what we call chewable chunks. You don't have to sit down there for three and four hours and punch it out because most procrastinators will get overwhelmed and quit, but you can take it for 15 minutes. And then have a reward at the end of that 15 minutes. So now you got something to work for. You have a little bit of excitement in your life, 15 minutes, four or five times during the day, and you can get a task that's pretty onerous done, but not sitting down and trying to punch it out. So chewable All right. chunk. All right, 10 tips now. Let's go with the 10 tips for procrastination. Yeah, I think the first tip I wanted to share was this notion of uh, you have to be creative with procrastination. I'll give you an example. I was getting stuck with writing an introduction of a book. I've written 12 books. And I sat down with a colleague of mine. And I said, Nancy, I'm just going crazy with this introduction. And she says, well, why are you writing your introduction? And I said, well, I, I want to frame the ideas of the book. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? And that was after I wrote three books. And she says, oh, I always do my introductions last. I said, really? She said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And then I did some research. And most writers write their introduction last, which is kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah, I could get rid of the introduction and try to figure everything out about the book and just start writing different sections of the book. So being creative, uh, watching out for those theories that say you got to begin at the beginning. Also, I worked with some guys down the Jersey Shore many years ago, and uh, we were school teachers and principals, and we would rent a house and we'd paint about 10 houses to pay our bills and to have a good time. And one of these houses, uh, the guy was supposed to deliver all the letters, and he was late. He said he called up, flat tire, I'm not going to be there till noon. We have 10 guys on the crew and we're looking at each other. Well, it's only 8.30 in the morning. Uh, what are we going to do here? And one of the guys said, well, why don't we just start painting standing up? We don't need ladders. And we all looked at him like, what are you, nuts? And then we uh -huh. said, all right. And so we painted a third of the house in about two hours because we're standing on solid ground. We're painting the house. We're talking to each other. 
magician and jackson and having a good time and the house or the house got painted in about two hours then the guy came with the ladders and we did it so we we followed that process for about five years every summer we'd go to the shore instead of starting at the top like you're supposed to we started at the bottom and that that was a marketing thing people come by and say why are you starting at the bottom well we found that this is much more effective never had to do any marketing we were called the upside down guys for about 10 years so being creative being different i think is really good and then another one is I had two friends who were writing dissertations and they were just stuck because there's no time. They both had two kids. And uh, so they made a deal. They said they rotated the kids. So I will take your two children with mine and we're going to have fun with them. They go to the zoo and the movies and the restaurants. They made the, the time with the kids very uh, uh, positive. Then the other person could sit for five, six, seven hours and they could write. And they rotated that. And within a year, both of them finished their dissertations. So getting help, being creative is a really important thing to do. Makes sense? Yeah, no, it makes complete sense when you say getting out, being creative, because there's just this certain things. And then you find in people's talents, especially what are their talents? And you are working with somebody else that has exactly different talents and you have a project to complete. If you can figure out ways of one person doing certain things that they knock out really well while the other person does the other, instead of expecting a member of your team that doesn't really have that talent, to make it work, that's huge. And that's what you teach a lot in your organization skills a lot of time, right? Your, your thing, yeah. Marriage talent, right? Your marriage talent. So when I write, I used to get caught in editing my writing and that would slow me down. Like, oh my God, is that a period or come some? And now what I do is I give somebody who likes to edit, right? Who has that skill set, and I do content editing for them. I'll say, this makes sense. I got lost here. So we have two different skill sets. He likes to have the punctuation perfectly. I do not know how to do that. I give it to him in a rough draft form. He makes it look beautiful. He's all over the place in his writing, and I am able to kind of structure and says, you lost me here. This makes some sense. I think this resonates. This is the sequence you should follow. It's like you said exactly. Two different opposite skill sets together. They can Two plus two it can be five. And the mistake we make is we go ahead and try to, to not focus on our talents, and we try to do things that really drain instead of figuring out outsource it or come up with another plan of action because we only have a certain amount of hours in a day and how much do you think our brain is able to focus without losing it you're shocked i can sit for 14 hours but i honestly probably do do a lot of multitasking during that time and i pro which is called switching which doesn't work and i probably would be more productive if i can knock out things early in the morning and, and structure those things even though i'm a pretty structured person is is definitely one of my uh, talents, according to Gallup, is achiever. So the achiever will work that long, long, long day. Go ahead, what are you going to say? Mine too. Yeah, I like the Gallup stuff uh, really a lot. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, the thing about uh, multitasking, it feels like we're, we're, we're accomplishing. All we are is busy. And to really think, you can't multitask. I mean, that's what we know with the research. Now, I, I can pet my dog, but I didn't take any thinking, right? There's a book called The Distracted Mind, and they found out that 23% of car accidents, think about this, are people who are, are texting while they're driving. So I'm driving a, a two-ton vehicle at 90 miles an hour, and I'm texting. 23%, that's tens of thousands of accidents that could be prevented with your smartphone away. So being distracted is a very dangerous thing. Yeah, it's definitely a dangerous thing. And so what you're saying is, what happens if things are moving slowly? I like the pace to always be fast. And so this is an interesting conversation we're getting into this because again, 
Dr. Patrick really knows how to organize very high level professional people because they have their specific talents and he helps them figure out how to work through some of those weaknesses and probably enhance their other talents and do the things that they need to do best and organize themselves throughout the day. Because if you don't stay organized, if things are moving slow and I'm waiting on something, then I will switch. Let's say I'm uploading a, a video and it's gonna take 20 minutes, I'll switch to that activity. But I used to do, which I found out doesn't work, I literally will try doing two things at once and switch back and forth and I am not doing really well in that conversation with somebody because I'm, I'm switching and I'm really not getting productive on the other end. So we have to understand it's really not multitasking, it's switching. Absolutely. And it usually takes you two times as long to kind of get grounded again. The research shows about 20% of the time just to get you grounded. Okay, what was my task? What did I do so far? So you pay a price. The switching is not a very effective thing. The other example you gave was fine. You know, you're waiting for 20 minutes, you can do something else. That's very different than going back and forth and back and forth. And some people are bad at that. They'll just stay focused on that or they'll just do something that's not a good thing to get to their to-do list. They'll just go to something else where they have 20 minutes to upload a video. So there you go. All right, another great tip. Let's hear another one. Yeah, routines and rituals are very helpful for procrastinators. And a routine is something that's almost mindless. You know, you just kind of do it. Like when you get up in the morning, you do some things, you eat your breakfast, you brush your teeth. You don't even think about it. You just brush your It's a routine. And so I walk 10,000 miles a day. And if I get up in the morning, right now we have a nice day, but we've had some pretty crappy weather with rain and snow and, you know, cold. If I'm saying, okay, now where's my hat? And I'm wearing gloves. And where's this extra sweatshirt? And by the way, where are my shoes? I don't want to. If I'm doing all that stuff as I'm thinking about walking, I'll get overwhelmed with it and say, oh, let me just have a cup of coffee. You go back to bed. So what I do is I set everything up the night before. It takes me about a minute to put the shoes on, the sweats. It's all organized. Go out the door, and I've had about a 98% success rate with 10,000 steps a day over the last two years. So routines are really helpful. Hemingway, the great writer, would get up very early in the morning. He would write while he was standing, and he'd work for five hours or produce five papers. That routine enabled him to win two Nobel Prizes. So some kind of routine. And then Stephen King, the very famous horror writer, sits down at his desk at 8 30 every morning there's either a cup of tea or a glass of water with a pad of paper with pens and pencils and he works for six hours so establishing some kind of routine can really break make you more productive and break your procrastination habit and so that's a very big point is that you're going to bed at the right time getting up at the right time those rituals will really help become more productive for sure mm -hmm. The third thing or, or fourth thing, whatever we're out here, there's two kind of partners you need in your life, I think. One's an accountability partner, and that's someone who you really admire and respect in your life. That's not a drinking buddy, probably, right? I mean, someone you really admire and respect. And if you gave your word to him, like if I gave my word to you, Neil, it would mean something. I wouldn't want to come back and say, you know, I didn't finish that project, Neil. I'd be disappointed about myself. I'd feel maybe ashamed and, and, and a little embarrassed. So an accountability partner, and it's with risk, right? Because sometimes you don't. And you have to say, hey, Neil, I, I kind of blew this one. But an accountability partner is very helpful, especially with difficult tasks. You wouldn't do it with a simple task, but finishing a book, finishing a paper, doing an invoice, something that's kind of difficult, your income taxes, um, it's good to have an accountability partner. The second kind of partner is a thought partner. And that's someone who, they're, they're friends. They're not the kind of revered or respected uh, accountability partner that we talked about earlier, but it's someone that you uh, thinks differently than you do. 
And sometimes, especially with procrastinators, we're very bad at estimating how long something's going to be and how hard it's going to be. So if you're my thought partner, because you think differently than I do, I think that's pretty apparent. Um, you're a very creative guy. I'm kind of more of a practical, kind of move things forward kind of guy. I'd say, well, I could do this in two weeks. And then Neil would say, hey, when's the last time you did a project like this? Well, about a year ago. It took me, how long did it take? Well, it took me four weeks. Well, why are you saying two weeks now? Right? So a thought partner gives you a reality check so that you are really more practical and reality-based. And But it's got to be someone who thinks a little bit differently than you do, see things a little bit differently so that they can open up a blind spot that you might have. So having a thought partner and an accountability partner are two really good things. I love that because, again, a thought partner versus an accountability fact, uh, partner. Explain the difference. Yeah, the accountability partner, you're really putting some kind of emotional uh, uh, bank account at, at risk, right? You want to keep your word with that person and keep your commitment. A thought partner is just there because they know how to see things differently than you do. And they say, you got nine things on your list. I think you can probably do it with four. It gives you a reality check. Once again, we're kind of overambitious as procrastinators. And a thought partner can kind of give us a reality check. And so that's almost a carrot versus a stick. If you want to count, huh? Right. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, another tip. We're again talking uh, to Dr. Patrick Sanahan, and we're learning all about this in this book right now. You can go check it out. It's available on Amazon. Just Google them. Find it. The link will be right in the description. Go ahead uh, with another tip. Right. The book is called How to Be a Better Procrastinator. Once again, it's on Amazon you know, Books and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's a very practical book, very easy to read. Um, Mark Twain said something a long time ago, and he's a very smart guy. You have two frogs to eat, eat the big one first. And I think that's an extraordinary misdirection for procrastinators. Procrastinators were very rarely eat the big one first. It's too noxious, it's too overwhelming, it's too complicated, we'll step away. But the little frog, I have a shot at it. The little frog, I can do what we talked about earlier, chewable chunks, chop it up in little pieces, right? I can sit down with a friend, now I'm socializing, right? I could eat it with something delicious, all like a nice beer or something like that, or a soda. So now I'm doing temptation bundling. I'm connecting something that's nice with something that's kind of noxious. And I'm doing it over time. I don't have to sit down and plow through the small frog or the small task. It's obviously a metaphor. Right. All in one sitting. So that takes me three or four sittings, and I've done it. Now I feel accomplished. I feel successful. And now I have some strategies to tackle the big frog. So that notion around do that, and a lot of people, Brian Tracy, there's a lot of famous people out there, oh, do your toughest thing first thing, and most procrastinators will not do that. So do something that creates some momentum and some success, and then tackle the big thing. That would be my advice from a procrastinator's perspective. So the mistake is everyone tries to tackle the biggest task, and if they don't get it done, they don't accomplish anything for the day. Don't accomplish anything. I, I worked with a marketing firm about seven or eight years ago, and they were doing salespeople. I'm not a salesperson, but they knew what I would, you know, I could knew a lot about teams. And he said, well, you know, the toughest thing we got to do, Pat, is at 8.30, we start our phone calls, the cold calling, which is a horrible task. Admire anyone who has to do that for a living. And he said, well, you know, we teach them to, to take the, the toughest call, the guy who's, or the gal is going to say no. And I said, why would you do that? And he and, you know, said, well, Pat, that's the kind of the protocol we follow. I said, well, can I make a suggestion? And he said, okay, Pat, well, what's your suggestion? Have them do a couple soft calls that they know they're going to get maybe an order of 300 bucks or 400 bucks or $1,000 feel successful, and then take on the tough one around 11 o'clock. You try that for three or four days and see what happens. It was a game changer. It was a game changer. They couldn't wait. After feeling successful, they couldn't wait to tackle the the, the, the tough call, but they didn't want to do that at 8.30 in the morning. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, absolutely. It makes complete sense. And it's like, you know, if you go in and say, okay, I'm going to call this, and then the opportunity comes. I think in a lot of ways, even in sales, 
If you want to get on that, get off that schneid, you'll do an easy sale versus a hard sale that's going to take a long time to, to close. So that's how I always look at things. And then it just, you have that momentum, you bring that progression, you have to have wins. Another one of my five major talent, my five talents from Gallup is again, uh, achiever. And so achieve, I, I want to achieve. And um, again, I'm a competitor. So competitor means I'm going to go ahead and I want to win. I don't win, I feel like I lose. Achievers work in the hard time, but then I have to have wins as, as, a, uh, as a competitor or you don't get wins, you, don't, you lose your momentum. You lose that process and you start to feel, and I know people that have that talent and feel that, you know, that they wanna achieve, they wanna compete, and they're not getting those wins, what happens, Pat? It just feels like you're delayed. Motivation drives up. So it's really helpful to have rewards, right? So you, you can feel the experience of whether it be a, a glass of wine, a walk with a friend, reading a mystery. So, oh, I've accomplished something there. And it's really helpful to make your progress visible. So and my agenda, I have an agenda that's bright yellow. I don't know if you can see that. Probably not. Not, not with the, not with the, the green screen. That's not all. And, um, I have it. It's bright yellow for a reason. It's I tape it across the room. When I get done doing one of my tasks, I stand up, right? I cross the room, get a marker, and take a big red marker and and, and cross it out. It feels like a million dollars. Then I sit down. I go into my second task. And during the day, I can see all these X's. But it's me physically getting up, walking across, crossing that thing out. It feels wonderful, and my motivation tends to be very high. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and so you're like, okay, cross this off, cross this off. At least have, and then you make your agenda not long, like you told me before. Because if you make it too long, forget about it. And I'm I'm about to I just um, adding some more uh, tools to my tool belt to decrease my procrastination. Salesforce, Buffer, different programs out there to help organize me more. And then that will make it so that I don't have to think as much throughout the day. I can, because if I keep everything up here, which I do too much of, that's not going to work in another 10 years. So tools, wouldn't you agree, pack tools would be another way uh, to organize yourself. There's apps that can help you out or any kind of tools that can help you out. That's good. And I'm a lot older than you are. So I have to write everything down. I think I mentioned that last time. I always have a notepad where I'm working. There's a good idea, and me, just a strange idea. Instead of it bouncing around my head, say, "Oh, I'll remember that later." I just write it down. And at the end of the day, I look at my idea things. Sometimes I have two or three things. Sometimes I have ten things. And you're a very visionary guy. You could probably fill up a page or two. But you've captured it. Get it out of your head. It's not a storage mechanism. It's a learning mechanism, a thinking mechanism. That's why Salesforce. I can't wait to tasks and different things. I want to hold myself accountable in that way, and that's starting. So again, always uh, think the improving, and because everyone is a procrastinator in some sort of way. What's your procrastination? What do you procrastinate on? Taxes. Again, April eighteenth, guys, not fifteenth. So you can procrastinate a couple more days. Taxes are due April eighteenth, ten days from now, not seven, uh, as we're recording on April eighth. I should turn to my accountant about two weeks ago. Okay, so you have an accountant bill. I'm going to be doing it myself April 18th. We'll be here soon. All right, so um, that's kind of any more tips to tell because you really bring some great tips and great stories as well. A couple of quick things. There's a guy named Leo Barbuda, B-A-R-B-U-T-A, and he's on uh, YouTube. Uh, he knows a lot about procrastination. And uh, he has a little technique where you put a rubber band on one of your arms 
And every time you procrastinate, you take it off one arm and you put it on the other. You go back and forth. So it, the, vis, the visual and the physical going back and forth is a real conscious reminder I'm procrastinating about something. I thought that was a beautiful little idea. Does that make sense? And instead of instead of going and shocking yourself, right, or torturing yourself for making the procrastination mistake, I think that if a, a list is sitting right at you, that can be, but also you can be deflated at times as well. That's a great story. Absolutely. And then uh, two more things. Uh, more choices are not good. And, and especially in the American culture, you go into the grocery store, you have 16,000 kinds of ketchup. I mean, we just think all this, all these choices and all these opportunities, just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. It can freeze a procrastinator. I got a good buddy of mine, one of my best friends. He took a year to buy a car because he had, uh, you know, the all the books and he could go on Google and he could find all the reviews. He got caught in a, a rabbit trail. You know, he just kind of went down, down, down. And then he said, okay, I think this is the car I want. A new car model year came out. So his wife said, get out of the way, I'm buying the car. And she did, she bought a nice car, but she wasn't gonna put up with another year of, of research. So it's just kind of funny how that works. But um, more choice is not good. And there's a good book out there called The Paradox of Choice. And uh, it's a guy from Swarthmore, I'm trying to remember his name, I just don't know right now, but it's a very good book, it's been around for a while, very readable, very practical. And basically they said somewhere between three and five choices is all you need. That's the research that indicates that, three to five, not 15, 18, 20. In fact, he even says towards the end of the book, really three is ideal. And when I read that book about six or seven years ago, I said to myself, okay, I'm looking for three options or choices, whatever I'm doing. I don't need seven, eight or nine. It just changed me from being much more focused now, picking three. It's like vanilla chocolate, you throw in, that's interesting. Now I got a choice here, but 15 other flavors does not help. So think about that, it's really important. And the last one is a lot of times procrastinators who tend to be pretty nice people, have a very hard time saying no to other people's requests. And I believe that lazy people uh, know this. They're very smart people, lazy people. And lazy people don't uh, experience the stress and anxiety that procrastinators do. That's the difference. Procrastinators have a lot of stress and anxiety. Lazy people couldn't care less. I mean, they have none of that. But these are five little steps you can think about. The first thing, it is hard to say no to people, so you have to practice with a partner. You You have to actually practice, do a little role playing. Adults don't like to do that but it builds your mental muscles to say no. The second thing you do is someone, if you came up and requested something for me, Neil, I don't have to answer right in the moment. So right away you got, oh, I'm kind of caught here. I'm in a bind. I'd say, well, Neil, let me give you a call back tomorrow morning. You have my word on that. I'll look at my schedule and my job responsibilities and I'll let you know if I can consider that, right? I mean, you get away from and the, oh, I gotta say, you know, I gotta do it right away. It's very bad. Third thing is find some kind of option for them if you can. Neil, I can't help you because my, my schedule is just nutty and I'm heading out of town. But Jim Seitz is a good buddy of mine. He knows exactly how to help you. I'll give you his contact information. You can connect with Jim. I'll let him know you'll be calling. that feel okay? So create an option for him. The third thing is, you, it, and this was really powerful. The fourth thing was really powerful for me. I heard some guy say this. He said, you're not saying no to Neil. You're saying no to the opportunity. So all of a sudden now it depersonalizes it for me, right? I'm not, I don't want to say no to Neil. I like Neil, but I'm saying no to the opportunity. I think that's really, really important. And then the next day, if you have to say no, do it by phone. It's a lot easier by phone than it is face-to-face. So that's the uh, some of the suggestions and strategies that people can Yeah, people try to procrastinate on the things that are the toughest, and they should, they should take care of them. And by picking up your book right now, where can they go? Uh, Amazon.com and Barnes and Noble has it. How to be a better procrastinator. I think it's thirteen ninety five. There's a Kindle version of it, 
and it's just a full of practical ideas because I'm a productive procrastinator, so I know what it's like to procrastinate, and these are all strategies that have worked with procrastinators for the last 20, 30 years. And when you work in organizational schools and teams, you see procrastination is a big problem, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. See, in the professional class, it's, there's a little bit of a difference in how, how much women and men procrastinate, but it's not much. It's not much. The big differential is the professional class and the working class. If I'm a plumber or I'm a carpenter, I got to get on the site. I got to get stuff done. I mean, I got a supervisor in charge of me. They tend not to procrastinate at all because time is money, money, money to them, right? But professional people say, okay, well, there's Pat. He's a good guy. He'll get that report done. And I could be closing my door in my office or, you know, my screen and dawdling around in my bathtub or bathroom, I should say, and not doing anything. So that's, you, you got to be very conscious of professional class, quote unquote, college educated, that kind of stuff. They tend to procrastinate significantly uh, much more than uh, blue collar, hardworking people. And then also the sanahangroup.com they can check out as well if they want, if they're interested again in consulting your consulting services. So I appreciate you coming by. It's a great conversation. We had a lot of fun. Really good. Once again, thank All you. Right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to Neil Haley's show, and we are talking to another amazing author. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Cathay Retta. Uh, Cathay, thanks for stopping by, and we're lucky, excited to talk to you today. How are you? Thank you, Neil. I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited, too. You know, Cathay, when you talk about stories and deciding to write the book and deciding to tell your journey in this inter interview, it's, it's a process, right? It's something that you really have to get yourself out there and try to do, right? It's not easy at first to try to tell your story, is it? It is a process and it takes a while. Um, although I've always liked writing and writing comes easy to me, but to actually pull together a story like this does take something. All right, so let's go some, uh, start out. What is the Camino de Santiago, the way of St. James and describe it and give brief his a brief history? Okay, it's a old pilgrimage trail across northern Spain. Actually, there's several trails that they call the Camino or the Camino de Santiago. All of them end in the town in the city of Santiago de Compostela in Spain. Um, probably the most popular trail and the one I walked is called the French Way. And that starts in France at the foot of the Pyrenees and then goes up over the Pyrenees and across uh, Spain, it's 483 miles and ends in Santiago. And there is where it is believed the remains of St. James, the apostle or the disciple of Jesus, where his remains are buried. And that's why it became such a pilgrimage trail. And it's been walked for hundreds of years. Um, it's so very popular. And actually, I walked it in 2019. And I understand there were about 350,000 individuals from around the world that walked it that year. So it's very popular. Um, and it goes through, it's, it's a wonderful uh, journey. It's a very structured trail, meaning that there's um, hostels and places to, you know, stay the night and to eat and, you know, services along the way. So it makes it kind of a safe trail. Um, but also some of it goes through dirt roads. Some of, some of it's on loose gravel and kind of hard to maneuver trails. Sometimes it's alongside a highway, uh, can go through grape 
vineyards, wine vineyards, sunflower fields, up mountains. The biggest thing I remember is it's very hilly. It's a lot of up and down walking. And so it's uh, quite a physical feat to do it, but it's just so wonderful. Why did you, yeah, so why did you decide to make a pilgrimage on it? You know, and when I started out, I didn't think in terms of pilgrimage, just I was 64 years old. My husband had died uh, two years previous, and I was thinking, okay, what do I do with my life now? What am I going to do for the next 30 years? And uh, I had heard about this trail, and it stuck in the back of my mind, and I have to say it called to me. I just got to the point where I knew it was something I had to do. I have to walk this. And so I went thinking, well, great. That'll give me lots of undistracted time to figure out what to do with my next 30 years. I mean, what do you do? You get up every day and you're going to walk. There's no big decisions or distractions. So that's what I expected. That's not what it turned out to be. My first night there, I was sitting in the back of a 13th century old Gothic cathedral um, in the Pyrenees. And there's, you know, the lights were dim, soft music was playing, people were coming in and out. And I sat there and I started to tear up. And then I heard inside me that inner voice said absolution. And I thought, well, I don't need absolution. That's not why I'm here. I know that absolution or forgiveness, that was the reason many pilgrims throughout the years would walk the trail. And uh, the Catholic Church had told them when they got to Santiago, they would get forgiveness of their sins. I said, that's not what I'm here for. And then I heard that voice say, yes, it is. You need absolution from yourself. I started thinking about it. I thought, well, maybe I'm missing something. I even looked in uh, the online dictionary on my phone and found out that absolution is um, it's a release from guilt. And so that kind of set the pace for this next 37 days that I, was, I was, that I was on the trail. It was a real spiritual healing. And once you had that spiritual healing and spending the 37 days, what else did you learn? How did you grow closer to God through that time? Um, there were so many things. So, you know, that was the start of it. The next day I was checking into a hostel and I started to tell this couple that my husband had died and that's why I'm walking to Santiago. I got as far as my husband and then I began sobbing. And again, that shocked me. I thought I was doing really well. I was strong. I, you know, but what I came to realize is I just suppressed, suppressed the grieving process. And I've learned that you can't do that. Um, there is a process and you have to go through and just let your heart and your spirit guide you through that. And so that was the begin of, beginning of this. And then a couple of days after that, I was going up to the place that's called the, the Hill of Forgiveness. And then again, I knew in my spirit that I had to forgive my husband for dying and leaving me. Again, I had no idea that was even in there, but I did. And just a weight lifted off of me. And so then I just kept going. It was very difficult. Um, my body was hurting. I was having a real struggle with my heels. I had developed Achilles tendonitis. And uh, so I was walking very slow. And there are other people, but I wasn't able to make any tight connections. And so I felt very alone. And I kept thinking, what am I doing this for? I should go to a luxury hotel, stick my feet in the pool and cool them off and just sit there. I can plan out the rest of my life there. 
Um, but I knew I had to keep walking this trail. It's something really important. And so I did. And you know, it's about three weeks in, I got to the lowest point, the worst part. I got bed bugs. Oh, no. <laughs> it was horrible. Oh. <laughs> and that's one thing I had feared and been worried about all the way. And I should say for anyone considering walking the trail, that's not that common. You know, that happens. That can happen anywhere. And so that afternoon, so I went to a laundromat. I washed all my clothes. I did what I thought I was supposed to do. I kind of wasn't really sure what to do. Then I went back to my uh, to the hostel and I was laying on my bed. And this man from the UK comes in, his name's Patrick, and he puts his bedroll on his bed bunk. And he said, hey, how's your day going? And I said, I've got bed bugs and I just want to go home. And I just started crying. And he so kindly, he reached his hand out to me and he said, may I hold your hand? And I said, sure. And then he sat down on the floor next to my bed and just started telling me, you know, that's part of life. It's the ups and downs and bed bugs, you know, they'll come and they'll go. Um, I don't know what else he said, but it really consoled me and I felt better. And then later we were walking around the town and at one point we're looking at this beautiful uh, 16th century Roman bridge. And he was telling me about the construction of it. And I found out he's a mechanical engineer from the UK. And uh, he had really studied, knew all the history in this area. And um, in the middle of that conversation, he turned to me and said, you're here to learn to fall in love with yourself again. And that just went straight to my heart and it just rung true. I knew that was it. And um, I just love that, you know, the messenger that came and brought that to me. And somehow things got better after that. I will say two days later, I still had bed bugs, but I was at another hostel and this time the host just jumped right in and helped me and we got all my clothes washed in hot water and sprayed with this poison that would take care of them. And I stayed at that place for three days and just really rejuvenated and started to feel that, that love and the care and started to, I don't know, something shifted in me and I knew that, okay, this is it. Maybe I'm learning to love myself again. And the other thing, though, as far as the lesson, I look back now and said, yeah, I got bed bugs. I had to. That was so in my heart, the fear of getting bed bugs that, you know, I think we send out an energy on whatever our mind is focusing on. We're Even, yeah, it's just the universe delivers. OK, bed bugs. It doesn't hear that I was saying no bed bugs. It just heard bed bugs. So they came. But they expected. So the universe gives it to you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so I thought, okay, well, that's something to keep in mind. You know, even if I'm saying it in my head that I don't want this, um, and my heart's fearing it, what I've learned is that an optimistic mind cannot override a fearful heart. And so that was the big thing from this whole experience is listening to my heart, listening to that inner voice and realize there's so many things um, going on that I had suppressed and not dealt with and or just ignored in my life. And so I began to listen and to let those truths of who I am come out and to really walk in it. Um, you know, another thing that kind of the probably the biggest point is more towards the end of the walk. I got a text from a friend back home. She said she had lunch with a few women and they were talking about me and they were saying, oh, she's an amazing woman. 
And I thought to myself, no, I'm not. And then that inner voice said, yes, you are, own it. <laughs> and so I said it out loud, I am an amazing woman. And it wasn't very convincing, I didn't believe it. And that I heard that voice say, say it again. And so I did it more boldly. 